0: Glad to be with you this evening to bring God's Word to you. It's good to be back. It's been a little bit. And uh, thank you for all your prayers and encouragement for the life of Emmanuel. We appreciate it so much and grateful for the wonderful things the Lord has done there. As uh, we turn to God's Word this evening, let's uh, come before him with a moment of prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we gather in your holy presence today... Uh, we sit at your feet, O Lord, uh, to learn of you. We thank you that your word is that lamp and light to our feet and path, and we pray, O Lord, that it would be so even now for our own hearts and minds, O Lord. Uh, unpack it before us as your people. Uh, help us to understand it, apply it by your Holy Spirit. Uh, grant us joy in Christ and joy in your promises Uh, Help us, O Lord, to look again uh, to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, O Lord, for this opportunity. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible or a phone with you, I'd invite you to turn to the book of Genesis. Uh, We've begun at Emmanuel back some weeks ago, a series on the book of Genesis. In this evening we're going to come to Genesis 4 verses 25 and 26 and then we're going to go into chapter 5 a bit. I won't read the whole of chapter 5 because our focus won't be there, but you'll notice this genealogy of the people of God that goes through from Adam to Seth and then on uh, there from that point on. Just one way of encouragement, one thing by the way of encouragement here, you might think Elder Dan is old. Uh, But if you read this genealogy, uh, he is in the family of Methuselah. Uh, And uh, he's not so old after all. Uh, So uh, go ahead and take a look at it later. But let's begin by reading uh, Genesis 4, verse 25. And following through, we'll read through verse 14 of chapter 5. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. This is a book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and called them man, and they were created." Uh, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his own image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived, um, after he fathered Enosh, 807 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 907 years. Uh, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Uh, Enosh lived, after he fathered Canaan, uh, 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived seventy years, he fathered Mahula. Uh Canaan lived another uh, after he fathered Mahulo on uh, eight hundred forty years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were nine hundred ten years, and he died. As you look at our world around us, there are lots of reasons to be dismayed. Uh, nations come and nations fall. Uh, it seems very depressing. As you look at the life of the Church of Jesus Christ, sometimes you find it to be the same. Uh, You can think of uh, times during church history which that seemed to be the case. For instance, in the late Middle Ages and just prior to the Reformation, there were pockets of believers throughout the world, but uh, as a whole, the main church was corrupted both doctrinally and in terms of godliness. Do you happen to know that near the time of the American Revolution, that about 6% of Americans were church members? Only 6%. During those days, there were some terrible things that happened. Uh, They had a public burning of a Bible and demonstration. And then there was a mock communion service that was held in our very own country. We can get depressed, we can get very cynical, we can get pessimistic if we only focus on the human condition. Uh, If you look and imagine uh, what it was like for Adam and Eve to raise two sons and then to have one of those sons take out the other son, Cain killing Abel, and then Cain's life being such a mess after that, everything would seem to be all lost. Humanly speaking, that is often the case if you look at it only that way. Uh, When our eyes are merely focused on the here and now, what we see happening before our eyes, we've often forgotten a look of greater importance. That look is to live not by sight merely, but by faith. Uh, We need to look up to the Lord, the capable and uh, gracious God. The story of redemption is a powerful one. Even though there are different human actors in it all, what is supreme and what stands central is the Lord is a great actor along the way. It's easy to bypass the promises of God, to not consider them important, and so we don't see them as our weekly and daily food. One of the reasons we come regularly to worship is that we might have the weekly promises of God to feed upon so that we can navigate our lives properly in the Lord's world. Well, God made a a promise here, a promise right after the fall and curse of sin. If you look in your Bibles over in Genesis 3.15, in the midst of God cursing the man, the woman, the ground, and uh, as well the serpent, we have this promise given to to Adam and Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." Imagine in the midst of uh, what is often just bad news, it seems, comes this good news, what God will promise the devil and what God would promise to Adam and Eve, that he himself would act, that God would not sit on the sidelines in human history, but that our Lord himself would enter the fight and uh, lead the charge. Perhaps you remember a little bit in World War II as the United States... Uh, sat on the sidelines for a period of time. And then finally, when Pearl Harbor was uh, bombed, it entered the fight uh, at that time. But imagine for a moment this possibility. If God had sat on the sidelines in his world, into this world of rebellion and sin and conflict and depravity, we would be without salvation. But God entered the fight He did quickly and powerfully. He said that he would act. Back there in Genesis 3.15, we have some important words. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Those four important words, I will put enmity. Perhaps if you like to listen to sermons, you've listened to one of those historic sermons. And there's a number of them, but one of them was done by Martin Lloyd-Jones and it was in Ephesians chapter two on two words. Uh, it starts out, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and then it transitions after a while, but God, but God who is rich in mercy made you alive with Christ, Je- or Jesus Christ. It was those two words, but God, that made one of Martin lloyd Jones's famous sermons. But you could say as well, here is a famous sermon where God himself speaks and says, I will take up arms, I will put enmity. He promises to start trouble in this world, good kind of trouble. And we are comforted greatly by the fact that God has entered the conflict, and he's sovereign and superior over all other forces, and it ensures the ultimate victory. We might not see what he is doing, but we are assured of it in Genesis 3.15. That he will create a cosmic warfare that will culminate in the seed of the woman, namely Jesus, who will come. Jesus will be the greater David who will come into the fight, and he will defeat the forces that defy the living God of sin, uh, hell, and Satan there. For a season, he will be down. It seems as he dies in his cross, but he will come back from the dead with power and majesty, triumphing over the powers and principalities in his cross. And we know well that the Bible has a long history uh, leading up to God's ace, Jesus. Uh, The history of the world would ultimately culminate and go around uh, God's ace, the Lord Jesus, but not only would there be the champion seed that would come, but there would be a seed-building enterprise throughout the history of the world, um, and the Lamb would have his followers who would follow after him. Take yourself back. Put yourself in the shoes of Adam and Eve. Uh, you would be crushed when one of your sons eliminated the other son. But then there become the seeds of hope, even before that happens, uh, that God would bring forth uh, the seed of the woman. And namely, it looked like Abel. And you thought everything was pinned upon him on Abel, and then he's killed. And it seems as if all hope is lost until we read verses 25 and 26 of our text. We find the formation of the godly line through the promised seed in verse 25. Now, as you notice, verse 25, uh, Eve named Seth. I think a little later it talks about Adam naming Seth as well. Uh, You'll remember in the Bible that often giving names to something uh, stresses authority over. Like Adam named all the animals. He had a certain sense of authority over them. Eve uh, herself uh, named Seth. And she sees some significance in him and gives him an appropriate name. Now, we would say Seth is a wonderful name. Uh, Maybe you just had a relative. Well, not in the case of Eve, probably. Uh, But you had a relative who was by the name Seth, and you wanted to rename someone Seth. Perhaps you know Seth, the elder over at Hammon, a fine and wonderful man. Uh, But all that seems kind of inconsequential compared to what the name Seth means. The name means to establish, uh, to place, to designate, to institute. Now it seems like, okay, that's that's well and good. But if you go back into Genesis 3.15, that word is used in a different form. I will put or set enmity between these two seeds and between their champions. So Seth is really God entering the world into hostility against Satan, against sin and hell as he's bringing forth the promised seed. And this is a wonderful, wonderful uh, event that happens here. Now there's another interesting word in the uh, ESV You'll uh, find in verse 25 it talks about another offspring instead of able. Uh, Offspring's a fine translation. The ESV uses it. But sometimes it obscures the connections that are there in the Bible. Where do you see that offspring word earlier? Well, again, in our key verse, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, and her offspring. Well, more literally, the word is seed. And as you go with the word seed, it's one of those collective words. It's like uh, the word deer. Uh, My sister, I remember one time, said, look at all the deers. Uh, No, it's not all the deers, it's the deer. Look at the deer. Or if there's one deer, there's one deer uh, there, Um, Seed is that kind of word. It's used both individually and collectively. If you come over to the book of Galatians, you'll see the individual nature of the word seed as it ties it into the Lord Jesus, that he is the grand seed of the woman who has been born. And you recognize the significance of this promise unfolds and unravels in a wonderful way in the scripture, ultimately in the Lord Jesus. But as well, seed is a collective term. And even in Genesis 3.15, you get both individual and collective. I will put enmity between, uh, uh, between you and the woman, between your offspring, collective, and her offspring, collective. And then it gets individual. He shall bruise your head, namely being Jesus, and you shall bruise his heel. And so you see both senses of it. And we don't do well if we ignore either sense to it. Uh, In other words, there is not only the Messiah, but there is the Messiah's community as well. The remnant, the followers of God, uh, the work, the covenant family of God. And what you find in the history of the world, based on this promise, is a train leading up to the birth of the grand seed, the, the Lord Jesus. But in that train as well, you find the usual nursery work of God, that God is producing a people for his name's sake, leading to the Redeemer and to those who are redeemed, to uh, those who are elected and sign on with the Lamb and follow after him. And so things were looking very bleak for Adam and Eve, for the world itself. But God appointed another seed by the name Seth, And raises him up and blesses him. And there comes a people out of this that follow uh, the Lamb, the remnant line of promise. In the book of Genesis, it's amazing to see the structure of it. It often does this alternating pattern. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 24, it takes the history of the world from Adam up to the flood but it takes it from the standpoint of the non-believing, non-elect line, the line of Cain and the line of Lamech. Then verses 24, 25 and 26 are a sort of prologue, and then chapter 5 is really the same history from Adam to the flood, but this time told from the standpoint of Messiah's people, of the elect line, of the believing line, of the godly line. And what you see is this uh, wonderful contrasts that are made in the book of Genesis. You have, if you look up in your Bible, in 423, you get the worst of the line of Cain, this dude named Lamech, who's a bigamist and as well a very violent and revengeful man. And he is there sort of in self-deification. God said to Cain, I'll protect you, and anybody who takes your life, I will punish them sevenfold. This Lamech says, I don't need God, I'll do it myself, and I will punish seventy-sevenfold. And what you see in the line of Cain, especially in Lamech, is self-deification. That God then raises up another sort of people, the followers of the Lord. The Bible not only talks about the coming of Messiah, which is central, but it talks about the history of Messiah's people. If you read only in terms of the coming of Messiah, you missed a good share of the Bible. If you read only in terms of the Messiah's people, you've missed what is central to the Bible. But as you read the book of Genesis, don't you know that chapters 37 through 50, I believe, are mainly about Joseph and the Messiah's people. But you would expect, if the Bible was merely about Messiah, that it would be Judah's line that would be central, the 37 through 50. Uh, But instead, Joseph's line and Joseph's work is done because it would preserve the people of God and then it would lead to the one who would come from Judah. And so both aspects are important. So as we look at this, what do we learn and grab from this a little bit? Do you notice how the Bible is closely tied and the work of God is closely tied to the family, to the covenant family? Sometimes we look at things merely as individuals. American uh, individualism is pretty prominent, not only in America, but in the Church of Jesus in America. But the very fact that what is stressed here is Adam was the father of Seth, Seth was the father of Enosh, Enosh was the father of Kenan. And it goes on and goes on like that to show that God doesn't just work with one individual, but he works with the covenant community. And we should revel in God's faithfulness, his steadfast love, as we read from Psalm 103, to those who fear him. From everlasting to everlasting. I don't know if you know this, but um, I don't know a lot of my family history, uh, but on my dad's side of the family, I know that there are probably five or six generations of believers, uh, one right after another, into things. Someday I'm going to retire. You think I should have done that years ago. Uh, But someday I will retire, and one of my jobs, I think, if I have the time and the wherewithal, is to end up studying my genealogy. Not so much to find out where in the Netherlands, in Friesland, my people came from that I'm from, but to find out how many years and how many generations of the Christian faith are in my family. It's uh, remarkable how many generations of the covenant. And when we look at the world that way, through covenantal eyes, it helps us Sometimes as parents, we isolate ourselves and think, well, it's only the here and now that's important. And these little rascals are little rascals. Uh, We have uh, no hope in the midst of it. Or when we look at older saints and we think, what's the church going to be or do when we're off the scene? Not that we're the end-all, be-all, but will it be faithful? And you recognize and prize God's covenant faithfulness. It's ultimately about him. And that often the channel that God uses to pass down the faith and godliness to the next generation is through the covenant family. And this is a wonderful thing that God does. And what is stressed in Genesis 5 is covenant succession. Now it's wonderful when you have conversions of those who are outside We have had a number of them by God's grace and God's grace alone up in Andover in this last two years. It is remarkable. But we want to do both. We want to reach those outside, but as well we want to nurture those with inside uh, to call them to faith in Jesus Christ and to rest on God's covenant promises. But also, this genealogy is helpful, my friends to help us to realize our place in the world. Do you know, do you believe this, that God has a grand story, you agree with that, that covers the history of the world, but do you realize as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a follower of the Lamb, that you are one chapter in that grand story that will be talked about in eternity? As you look through uh, these chapters, chapter 4, it goes through the genealogy of Lamech and the genealogy of Cain. And as you go through that, it stresses certain things, like their technological advancements and developments. It stresses their boastful attitude, etc. But when you come to the line of Seth, you have none of that. You just have one thing stressed. Seth was the father of so-and-so. He was the father of so-and-so. They had other sons and daughters, and it goes on, so on, and so forth. And you realize that you're part, as a Christian, of a grand mosaic of God calling people out of darkness into his most wonderful light. And this, this story that you're part of brings to us great meaning and purpose in the history of the world that we're not isolated little cogs there, but we're part of the plan of God, a chapter in that wonderful story that God, by his grace, is writing. What a joy and what a privilege. Well, secondly, this evening, we'll look down at verse 26. This formation of the godly line leads to a calling on the name of the Lord. Read verse 26 to yourself a moment. Now, if you read that part where it says at the end of the verse, at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord, you might say, Well, okay, well and good. That's good. I'm glad they did. But then you start thinking about it a little bit more. And you say, What are the implications began to call on the name of the Lord? Does that mean that Adam and Eve uh, were not Christians and uh, that Abel was not a believer? Because it says, began to call on the name of the Lord. I would venture to say, if you believe that, you're wrong. Why? Well, remember a couple of things. The Genesis 3.15 promise goes to Satan, but it goes to Adam and Eve. It's a promise of a Redeemer. Remember as well that Adam called his wife Eve, the mother of the living. There was something going on of life there that was happening. Then remember how God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins, symbolizing covering over their sin... It seems, boy, they were part of things by God's grace. And if you can't get over Adam and Eve, then take Abel, okay? And you go through Abel, who predates uh, this verse in 426. He was a herder, and what did he do? He sacrificed uh, animal or animals to the Lord in worship. He called on God's name in a sense, and he had faith in the Lord, as Hebrews 11 around verse 5 tells us. So the option number one, that calling on the name of the Lord means these other people aren't Christians, doesn't seem like a very good option. Let me give you option number two. Option number two is that before this, worship was informal, and now it became formal. It's a possibility, but remember what Abel did. He, in early part of chapter 4, he offers the Lord an offering uh, himself. He brought from the firstborn of his flocks, the fat portions he brought. And so there was worship there before, and so I don't think another likely option. But I think the option that is the right one, the way to see it, is the third option. And it is this. If you can't really note this so much in your English Bible, but at the end of verse 26, notice how Lord is capitalized. Okay, if you go in your index or table of contents in the Bible or descriptive part of the translation, it will say when it's capitalized by that, it is the name Yahweh in Hebrew. Okay, so it says they began to call on the name of Yahweh. Okay, uh, now you have to know a little bit about the Bible. If you go to the early chapters of the Bible, all the way pretty much to Exodus 3.14, what name is used for God primarily? Elohim, which is the generic name for God. Um, sometimes that, that and I might be used. I don't remember yet, but it's pretty much uh, Elohim. But at Gen- or Exodus 3.14 Remember, Moses is at the burning bush. And there he is. And God says, lead my people out of Egypt. Moses says, Lord, what am I to tell Pharaoh? He's the number one superpower guy. And what am I to tell your people? And the Lord says, "Uh, I am that I am. He uses the name Yahweh. Uh, Now, uh, that's his answer to Moses. Moses. And uh, some have translated that primarily to mean God's self-existence. Uh, if we were using improper English, we might say, I be, or I was. We have a flavor of that in the book of Revelation where it says, uh, the one who is and who was and who is to come. But I don't think in Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush that the idea that is stressed, is that God self-exists. That's already known. That's already in Genesis 1. But the idea is what Gerhardus Voss, the excellent scholar, has noted. It speaks, I am or Yahweh, speaks not of his self-existence, but primarily of his faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness. If you go over to Exodus 3.14, notice how that phrase is modified, or that name is modified. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Aha! The light goes on. We realize where we're at. To call on the name of the Lord in 4.26 of Genesis is to call on the name of the covenant God. Uh, you begin to see the, the wonder of it. What God is uh, saying in Exodus 3 is, I am the covenant faithful God who has made promises to the patriarchs and is keeping those promises. And even back here, they are looking to the covenant God, although not all his name has been revealed to them yet. Now you might say, well, where's the idea of covenant earlier than this? That they could call on the covenant name of God. On Reformed theology, it is seen that Genesis 1 through 3 have a covenantal structure to them in the fact that there was a covenant of works that was made with Adam as a representative of humankind, the first man there. And we get explicit statement of that covenant of works in Hosea 6-7 as the lord recounts you broke the covenant that or adam broke the covenant i made with him in hosea 7:67 7, 7. in other words there was a covenant of works that god set up but then thinking theologically as well where covenant is before if you go to genesis 3:15 uh many reformed theologians almost all through the years have seen this as excuse the word, the seeds of the covenant of grace. The beginning of the promises of God, uh, of a relationship of union and communion, and a redemption, so that relationship can be uh, started and maintained as well. And so now, when you come over to 4.26... Even though there was a limited knowledge to what the covenants all entailed there, which would be later revealed more fully, they began to call on the name of the Lord. And then notice, as a covenant, Lord Yahweh, then notice the whole of the fifth chapter is covenantal in its flavor. This one begat this one, and this one had this son, and so it's fleshed out here. And so what you find is they were, in contrast, these believers, this line of Seth, in contrast to Lamech, who was self-exalting and full of self-deification and self-reliance, these people were relying on the Lord and his covenant promises. They were finding their strength and salvation, their help and promises in the Lord. If we had more time tonight, we would develop it further, but we don't. Just one little quick segue. Does it mean that they began to call in the name of the Lord, or does it mean that the Lord began to call them by his name? Is it one or the other, or is it both? You'll have to come to Andover next week to find out. (laughs) That's the way we grow the church. We steal sheep from other churches there. (laughs) In either case, I think it's really both. They were marked by the name that they followed. If you have a Bible and you want to flip there, look over in Isaiah 44, verses 3 through 5. This is one of the classic uh, helpful texts on this whole topic. Uh, Some of my thoughts are developed from an Old Testament professor that I had at Westminster in California. Uh, Excellent, excellent uh, scholar in that. And I was reading some things by him even recently. Uh, But he pointed out Isaiah 44, verses 3 and 5. We'll skip verse 4. Let me read it for you there. It says, For I will pour out water on the thirsty ground, or land. And streams on the dry ground, I will pour my spirit, notice what it says, upon your offspring. Notice what it says, and my blessing on whom your descendants. And then here's what they do, and here's what is done to them in verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand the Lord's, the name by which he himself, uh, he will name himself by the name Israel. And so what you have is this wonderful thing of self-identification with the name of the Lord. A covenantal confession that when God pours out his spirit they will identify themselves as a, uh, a belonging to the Lord and belonging to Israel or Jacob, that they are the people under the covenant lordship of Yahweh. And so what do we learn in short? In short, the Sethites, or those who follow him, acknowledge themselves as the servants of Yahweh and depend on his great redemptive promise to put enmity between the seeds, and bring the ultimate seed, Jesus. Isn't that what we do today? We call on the Lord to belong to him, and he calls on us to belong to him. We're known by the name Christian, Christ ones. We belong to Jesus. And we lay hold of the Lord in covenantal confession, he is our God, we are his. He is our Lord and our Heavenly Father, and we are under his covenant protection. What a wonderful joy and privilege that is, and it unfolds all the way from Seth to us today. God is building a seed for his namesake. As you go through 4 and 5 of Genesis, there's one line that serves God. The other line serves self. Cain and Lamech are the worst of it. One line has the seeds of faith, the other has the eyes of the flesh. Genesis 5 is really a discussion of who are the Lamb's people, the covenant community, the seed of the woman. And what dominates that group is the promises of God. As someone has pointed out, It seems like up to 425 that Satan wins the war between the two seeds. But here, in the grand display of the grace of God and the redemptive plan of God, God is bringing his own people out. And he will bring the ultimate one, Jesus. The Lord is making good on his promises. To insert enmity into our world. Though the wrong seem off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And we realize though the wrong seem off so strong in the world, God is involved in his enmity inserting work. And we as his people depend on it. We bank on it. We revel in it. We trust in it. And we look to the one who is the key to all his trouble that he caused. Namely, our blessed Savior, Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for these words from you. Powerful, meaningful, significant, strong. We thank you that, Lord, you are God in ages past and our hope for years to come. That you are redeeming God, and you have brought your promises to be yes and amen in Christ Jesus. What a wonder of wonders that is, Lord, that you would do so. And Lord, that you would include us in those who are named as your people. That, Lord, you would give us your wonderful covenant that I would be your God and the God of your seed after you. Help us to claim it, to respond to it, O Lord, uh, to rest and revel in it. And help us, O Lord, to be a missionary people too, uh, calling those outside the covenant community as well to faith in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for your work here. Continue that mighty work. We pray for your blessing on the session, your blessing on Pastor Michael, even as they seek to serve you faithfully. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.